Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government, whether you're with us in the room or joining online. And welcome to this event, which the Institute for Government is delighted to be hosting in partnership with Queen's University Belfast and with the support of the Economic and Social uh, Research Council. I'm Joe Rutter, I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. Today, we're looking at the Northern Ireland Protocol, and in particular, what people in Northern Ireland think about the protocol and the impact it's having on their day-to-day -day life. We know what the UK government thinks about the protocol. We know what quite a lot of Conservative MPs think about the protocol. And we hear what Northern Ireland politicians think about the protocol. But I'm delighted today that our colleagues are going to share some recent polling on what the public in Northern Ireland think about the protocol. So just to run you through the format, we're going to kick off with a presentation by Professor Katie Hayward, Professor is, uh, Katie is Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast and a Senior Fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. We've then got uh, three more very distinguished panellists to discuss those results with. They are Professor David Finnamore, Professor of European Politics and the coordinator of the ESRC-funded research project on governance for a place between the multi-level dynamics of implementing the protocol in Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is really quite an academic title for something, I think. But anyway, uh, then over there, on my far right, is Raoul Roperol, former Europe Special Advisor to David Davis as Brexit Secretary, and then Theresa May as Prime Minister, uh, now Director of Trade and Investment at Deloitte, but critically, a man who's established something of a reputation as the person who forecasts where landing zones might be found on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So we might get some more insights from Raoul today if he's channeling his inner Liz Truss. And last, but by absolutely no means least, the IFG's own expert Northern Ireland watcher and frequent uh, appearer on Northern Ireland broadcast media, Jess Sargent. So that's the lineup. Please do post questions. I'll take questions from in the room, but I'm very keen that everybody watching online has as good an experience as the people here, even if they don't get a coffee cup. Uh, they might get better coffee at home, frankly. <laughs> but uh, please do put in your questions on Slido. If you want to tweet along, we think the hashtag is IFGBrexit, so tweet along to that. We will, of course, be live tweeting from at IFG events. So this is the moment of truth when I say, let Katie and the slides please work. So over to you, Katie. And it's a real pleasure to have colleagues who we've only sort of communed with online from Belfast actually here in London today. Katie. Thank you very much, Jill. And it's a real pleasure to be here. And thanks to IFG for hosting us. Um, so yes, I will use my technological solutions to be able to um, present the latest findings from our poll. So this poll is um, part of the project um, that's already mentioned that David leads upon. Um, and this is the fourth poll that we've conducted uh, with Lucid Talk. So um, basically this is an online opinion panel poll um, and the results that we are showing is based on a weighted sample of just over one and a half thousand people and it's representative of the um, adult voting population in Northern Ireland, and there's a margin of error of um, plus or minus 2.3%. So I'm just gonna give you the headlines here. Um, 
please go to our website if you want to see uh, more of the data tables and a report that we've um, co-authored uh, with Lisa Witten on the results. So uh, as part, because this is a time series poll, basically we're able to look back at what's happened over the past um, year or so. Our first poll was published in March last year. We're able to ask the same questions and then some different ones. So this, is, um, this first set of questions um, is one that we've asked since the very beginning, so we can map changes that have happened over time in terms of opinion on the poll. And to put it very simply, um, what's happened since uh, March and June is um, an increase in people thinking that uh, the protocol is on balance a good thing. However, you can see that there's a very strong proportion of our respondents who still think negatively about the protocol. Um, and uh, a couple of key points to bear in mind is that um, still we have a majority thinking that Brexit is on balance a, a bad thing for, for Northern Ireland, but most um, consistently across the whole time series, we've seen um, at least around two-thirds of people thinking that Northern Ireland always needed particular arrangements out of Brexit. Um, whether they think the protocol is appropriate or not is, is a matter of disagreement. One significant change since June has been uh, previously, we had a high number of people who were undecided on it, and it was more or less even split about those who thought it was good and bad. And we have seen people move now towards thinking on balance it's a, a good thing, so just, just around half of people now. That's possibly due to people looking across the water over here and seeing the impact of Brexit here, perhaps. Um, um, I will leave this up for a little while so you can work it out. This is us, the simplest way we, we thought to show you. So we essentially, essentially, we were asking people around how they're experiencing the protocol um, at the time of asking. I should say that this poll was conducted at the beginning of February. It was at the end of a notable week for the protocol mm. in which um, Minister Ebrin Poots ordered um, checks to stop on agri-food products coming into Northern Ireland. And uh, the next day, Paul Gavin resigned as First Minister. Uh, portedly over the protocol as well. So it was very much in the news. Possibly unsurprising, therefore, that the majority of people, as with our previous polls, think that the protocol is having a negative impact on political stability in Northern Ireland. This has been consistent finding in our poll. Um, also consistent um, from the beginning of last year when we started our polling is the view that the protocol has a negative impact on British-Irish relations and on UK-EU relations. Um, what has changed, and you can see this um, reflected here, is a move since last October's poll um, towards a majority of people thinking that the protocol is actually um, uh, good for the economy, uh, is, it can, its impact on the economy of Northern Ireland is, is good, um, and also more people are thinking that it's good for the protection of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement as well. Um, so what you can see in this, in this line, I'm not sure, I'm totally out of practice on using this now. No, that's not going to work. Um, but essentially, you can see just the movement is towards the positives, uh, but overall, the big picture is, is red. So still in the negative um, sense overall of the impact of the protocol across those areas, even though there's a shift towards moving towards a more positive view. Another question that we ask every time is, um, who do you trust to manage Northern Ireland's interests when it comes to the protocol? Um, and... We've also asked about the different parties, not just Sinn Féin and the DUP. Um, the headline finding from this is consistently, people don't trust anybody uh, to handle Northern Ireland's interests on the protocol. 
um, with the exception of business representatives in Northern Ireland. And this figure for them has steadily grown over the course of the year. So um, that's very notable. Um, when asked why, I would suspect partly it's because when they're speaking on the topic in public, they are speaking with evidence and with facts. They're giving explanation of the, of the experience of the protocol. And generally speaking, they're speaking quite reasonably too. Um, so people do trust them on that regard. Um, uh, they don't tend to trust the political parties. We asked about the Northern Ireland Executive. They don't trust the Northern Ireland Executive. Um, with respect to trust in the UK, uh, sorry, in the Irish government and the EU Commission, um, there's, a, there's a split on this. You might imagine where the split comes uh, when you look at, in more detail um, at people's views um, with respect to that question. Uh, but consistently, since the very beginning, trust in the UK government has been between 4 and 6%. It's at 4% again in this poll. And it's not just that people don't trust the British government, they distrust them. Um, over half of respondents distrust them a lot. Um, and I think this helps us understand the connection to concerns around political stability um, and concerns around the protocol more generally as well. And we think about the context in which the protocol was developed. Um, that's very notable. Um, you will recall that there's a democratic consent vote um, so-called at the end of 2024, um, that members of the Legislative Assembly, whether it's sitting or not, will have to vote uh, on the application of Articles 5 to 10 in the protocol. These in general relate to the so-called Irish Sea border. Um, this is an interesting one. So you can see here how it's changed over the course of our polling. Um, so we've seen now, since October, a majority saying that they'd like their MLAs to vote for full application of the protocol, i.e. not suspending Articles 5 to 10 or having them rewritten or revised. Um, and you can see from the results there, it's not really that people have moved, um, those who are against have moved, it's really that those who had no preference or no um, view on it have actually moved towards thinking they want the protocol fully implemented. And then last but not least, um, we asked a set of questions in this poll that we haven't asked before, um, and with sort of agree-disagree statements. And um, I've just selected some of them here for you. Um, so uh, one thing when we asked about people's concerns with respect to the protocol that has consistently come through throughout the, the polls have been the lack of Northern Ireland's representation in the management mm -hmm. of the protocol. Um, when we asked them whether there should be formalized structures to hear directly from business and civil society in Northern Ireland, this was the question that most people agreed with. Um, and then a, a couple of other questions that we have a clear majority in agreement with, or statements rather. Um, a failure by the UK and EU to agree soon a solution to the outstanding issues regarding the protocol would undermine peace and stability in Northern Ireland. Uh, this shows the, the pressure on those talks uh, at the UK-EU level, even if people have very low opinions of their ability to trust the UK government in that, and some people don't trust the EU on that. They do realize that those talks are really significant or think they're very significant to peace and stability. Um, interestingly enough, um, a clear majority also think that Northern Ireland um, could have um, unique opportunities, economically speaking, arising from the protocol, which potentially could benefit Northern Ireland. Um, and we see people from across um, different political viewpoints um, agreeing with this uh, particular statement, which I think is very interesting. Um, a majority, uh, 
think that the UK government should prioritise upholding its international treaty obligations, including under the protocol, in all circumstances. Related to that, perhaps, um, a majority disagree that the UK government would be justified were it to trigger Article 16. However, we do see four out of ten people thinking that it would be justified if it was to trigger Article 16. And last but not least, um, something that we're very conscious of um, is the lack of confidence in the, in the reliable information available on the protocol in Northern Ireland in particular. Um, and so only 21% um, uh, think that the print and broadcast media in Northern Ireland can be relied upon to provide balanced coverage of political and economic developments with respect to the protocol. So we come back to that question of where do people get their um, information on with respect to the protocol? How are their views formed? And these views, as we can see from, from our polling mm. across the year, are very um, strongly held um, and politically significant when it comes to their choice of um, candidate in the upcoming elections. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Katie. Um, Katie, we've got one technical question. We've got some questions coming in. I'm noting that anonymous is either extraordinarily active or a lot of people <laughs> want to conceal their identities. Either is fine. Delighted to have you. Uh, but if you do want to tell us who you are, that, uh, that's even more interesting. Just got a sort of technical question on the polling from Anonymous, um, who is, is asking whether the poll is a series of, who's assuming that it's a series of cross sections rather than a standing panel. That's right, isn't it? That these are you know, representative samples, but they're not the same sample you go back to time and time again. So it's an opinion panel. Um, so there's 13, over 13,000 on that panel. Mm. Um, so the the opportunity to answer the poll goes to all 13,000. Um, and then we have had different numbers, over 2,000 each time. Uh, the last response was over 3,000 people. Um, so we don't know exactly whether mm. that's exactly the same as mm. answered the previous poll. And then the representative sample is taken from whoever obviously answers okay. that particular well, poll. Hopefully Anonymous is happy with that answer. Um, so a question, Jess, which was from Anonymous 2, which was actually very similar to the question I was about to ask you. Um, Anonymous has asked, can you give a brief summary of the implementation of the protocol so far? So where do things stand both on actual implementation of the protocol, but also on the negotiations that we see happening almost weekly between Liz Truss and Maris Cechkovic? Absolutely. So, I mean, the protocol as it is written um, has not been fully implemented. So when we talk mm. about the impact the protocol mm. has had mm. on, on trade or on mm. business, really, we don't know the true <coughs> impact because we haven't seen it fully implemented. Um, quite a lot of the customs aspects have been implemented and the UK government has given a lot of support mm. for business through the Trader Support Service, which is why we seem to be um, quite successful mm. and quite helpful. That aspect has gone fairly smoothly, um, although there are problems that the UK wants to see resolved. Um, but on the agri-food side on these, these um, sanitary and phytosanitary checks which will be the most um, require the most um, the most uh, onerous checks essentially because um, they're required on lots of products um, that might be sold in supermarkets and there's the potential to disrupt supply chains on those um, the UK and the EU agreed a grace period which has since been extended by the UK government so we're actually seeing quite a low level of those checks taking place at the moment and then since then we've also had Edwin Poots um, who has um, called to halt some of those checks um, where they were taking place although there's that currently issue is in the courts as to whether um, the civil servants should comply with that order um, so that's on the kind of implementation side I mean the reason why 
there's been uh, this, it's not been fully implemented is because um, the UK is now is, is seeking changes and there are these ongoing discussions between the UK and the EU. Um, there has been some progress on some issues like medicines. It seems that there are some, um, some commonly found solutions in that area, but on things like the level of checks and controls, mm. there's still a high level of disagreement mm. between the UK and the EU. The EU has put forward proposals to try and minimise those checks. The UK still doesn't think that that is mm. enough, and you know, ultimately their position is that any good that is going mm. from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and remaining in Northern mm. Ireland shouldn't be subject to checks, and a similar principle, they would argue, on, on the customs. There's also a whole other um, set of issues, um, like the role of the European Court of Justice, um, the application of the EU state aid regime mm. in Northern Ireland, some issues around VAT, mm. where the EU is not particularly receptive to discussing potential changes mm. to the protocol in those areas. Um, so although with the change of from Lord Frost um, to Liz Truss, we've seen a slightly more positive mm. tone, we've seen more joint statements, um, the practical issues to be resolved are, are still quite difficult um, and we haven't, haven't got a deal quite yet. Um, Katie, just a question here to pick up what Jess was saying about the fact that we actually haven't really experienced the protocol resin tooth and claw yet. Terence Wright's asked how useful it is actually to seek opinions on, on the protocol when people actually haven't experienced it. Do people in Northern Ireland know that the protocol is not fully implemented yet? Um, so that's a good question. So we did test knowledge of the protocol and it's not as... Um, good as possibly people think their understanding of the protocol is. Um, however, it absolutely is important to test people's opinions of it because it is um, uh, front left and centre of a lot of the political debate at the moment um, and has been since the beginning of last year. Um, and uh, people are beginning to, experiencing it, to experience it, mm. not in the kind of empty shelves kind of mm. way, uh, but in the smaller ways such as um, you know, certain goods not being available from Britain as they might have been before, etc. And just a quick, quick follow-up question before I come to David. When the UK was experiencing those shortages in the autumn, and we were saying, was it COVID, was it Brexit? I think UK and Change Europe reproduced a piece on, is it COVID, is it Brexit? Um, did Northern Ireland sit there rather smugly and say, hmm, mainland problem? We're sort of okay. Maybe this protocol thing's not so bad after all. Did that affect public opinion at all? Or Yes, I suspect it did. So our last poll was in October and it happened after the headlines mm. around the shortages here. Um, and we did see a big leap, particularly on the economic mm. impact. Um, people think it was having a positive impact on the economy of Northern Ireland. I'm sure it must be related to that. And some of the comments put forward too. Uh, we asked for people's comments, um, which Lisa Whitten analyses, and that was very clear that that was uh, a sense as well that people had. Okay, David, I wanted to come on to uh, onto that. Katie's presented those sorts of results. Um, you know, if you were coming and saying to UK negotiators, this is where public opinion is in Northern Ireland, what do you think they should particularly take note of? What should they make of these results? I think, okay, the starting point is picking up on a lot of the mm. red that um, Katie yeah. showed is, okay, there's still huge division over the, pro the protocol, mm. um, over Brexit. But equally, when we look across the, the four poles, mm. uh, we're seeing the majority of people in Northern Ireland accepting, hey, you probably do need particular arrangements for Northern Ireland, um, that if you get the protocol mm. to work, you resolve some of the outstanding issues, then two-thirds of people think there could be opportunities mm. there. There's lots of contingencies here, but... Um, I think that, that 
that the message there, I think, should be, okay, well, keep working to try and find the resolution to the outstanding issues, because there is broad support for the protocol if it can, if it can be made to work. Um, I think also we need to recognise that okay, there are multiple concerns that mm. people have. Um, Jess raised a couple, mm. of, a number of, of them there. Mm. But across the polls, the two polls we've done, we've, it's been clear what the key priorities are. The medicines mm. is a real priority issue. Uh, so it's good to know there's a reasonable amount of mm. progress being made towards a solution mm. there. They're very concerned about creating voice for Northern mm. Ireland. Northern Ireland mm. voice being heard in the development of the UK government's position in the debates and discussions between the UK and, and the EU. So those, I think, are some of the issues which, if you focused on, you may then be able to get that support coming in for the protocol and alleviate some of the concerns of, of, of other, other people. Um, what the, the concerns aren't necessarily mm. around the court of justice question. They're not really around the diversion of goods um, a question. Um, so there's a clear sense as to what the priority issues should be. I think a third point I, I take away is, okay, it relates to that trust question. Okay, whatever you do has now got to be sold to the people in Northern Ireland. And I think there needs to be a lot of thinking done into how you actually convert that distrust into a sense of trust that this is a, a set of arrangements that could work long, longer term. Um, I'm not sure how you do that because I think despite the efforts of the UK government and over the last year to try, try and show that they're prioritising um, concerns of people in Northern Ireland, that trust figure is just is not moving. Mm. And that is a real concern here. That's very interesting. And you actually showed that there's quite a, a relatively high level of trust in the European Commission, the Irish government compared to... Is that just the sort of, you know, is that just people who always opposed Brexit in Northern Ireland, he thinks Brexit's a mistake just saying, well, actually, you know, the Europeans, you know, they get it and we don't trust them. Yeah. I, I think what you have to, have to, have to realise is that okay, some people will, will say, okay, well, people who would identify as nationalists mm -hmm. are probably going yeah. to be far more supportive yeah. and trust in the Irish government and, and the Commission. Remainers will probably trust mm -hmm. in the Commission. What you've rarely have in, in Northern Ireland society is trust in the UK government. And I don't think it's just okay. a problem around the protocol. It's around a lot of other issues. So there's something systemic there which you've got to try and overcome. That's, uh, that's really, really interesting. I'm going to take a similar question. I want to come back to some of these questions about how actually you could give voice and things like that to people in Northern Ireland. Raoul, if you were still a special advisor in government or you were brought back in uh, and Liz Truss says, well, I haven't had much time this week, other things are going on, but you've seen these poll results. You know, what messages do you think the UK negotiators should take out of this, yeah. yeah. Well, I think, look, I think it is. It highlights, as, as David said, that the positions are very entrenched. You know, the consistency throughout the polls. I think it is clearly very divided. I think fundamentally, you know, my takeaway is, you know, even though there are slight majorities or sometimes reasonable majorities in favour of, of, of certain parts and, and the protocol, you still have very sizable minorities against. And I think, you know, we look back at the history of Northern Ireland, it's a history of quite large minorities having to be taken into account. And so I think that continues to be something the UK government is, is trying to take account of. And, and I, I, I would obviously continue to, to support that. I do think Jess's point about the fact that the protocol isn't fully implemented yet is, is an important one because if you tie that in with people not actually knowing and the knowledge of the protocol being quite low when they're asked questions about it, you kind of have a weird space we're in now where people might think the protocol is being implemented, but it's not what they think it is and it's not fully implemented. So I'm a bit cautious about drawing too many concrete, um, you know, from, from, from these polls until we fully see the protocol being in place. Although I would be interested to see future questions about do people understand to what extent the protocol is being implemented? I mean, my personal view is it's probably 
more than the EU says it is, but less than the UK says it is. So, you know, there is quite a lot of it being implemented, but it clearly isn't the whole thing. Um, so I, how much people in Northern Ireland understand that, I don't know. I think that is an important point. So I think, but, but for me, the biggest thing is, you know, the, the election coming up. And at the moment, I just think it's very hard to, to draw any conclusions until we see the outcome of the election and how things look afterwards. I mean, anything the UK government or the EU puts on the table ahead of the election will probably be slammed from at least one side, if not both sides. Um, you know, the unionist sides are, are very likely to, to take a dim view of, of anything because that's the position they're taking into the election. Uh, and therefore, I don't see the incentive ahead of them to really, uh, to really make any kind of concessions or moves. In the aftermath, we'll see how it looks, but obviously the polls suggest it is going to change. And as some of the polling here has showed, people are factoring in the protocol in their votes and, and, it, and it will have an impact. I think, though, it's going to be quite a confused picture. You will probably have a slightly larger sort of pro-protocol majority in the, uh, in the assembly, potentially. But equally, you have a very entrenched minority, and you will have a very difficult situation in getting the assembly and the executive back up and running. And so coming from that position then gives the, the minority, the, the quite sizable minority, quite an influential role. So. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very difficult situation, uh, and I think the biggest conclusions have to be have to be drawn from from the election result and and where we land in the aftermath there, and and see if there is a pathway through. But at the moment, it feels to me we're kind of in a bit of a limbo stalemate for for at least a few months, if not longer. Does anyone want to dissent from the fact that we're in a limbo stalemate until the election? Yes, um, the government and the DUP talk a lot about Article 16 uh, and the need to trigger Article 16. Would that actually make any immediate difference to anything on the ground apart from raising the temperature between the UK and the EU? I mean, substantively, does it change anything very much? I think it's very unclear what exactly triggering Article 16 would look like in practice um, from the UK government's perspective. It's not something they necessarily elaborated on um, in the mm -hmm. command paper. In fact, they said they might use it to extend the grace periods, which has been done anyway. Um, so it, there's a lot of ambiguity about, about what exactly it means. Um, it could be that they suspend customs checks or something like that, some, some of the mm -hmm. elements of the protocol that are in force, but it's not clear what practical implication mm -hmm. Um, that would have. I think it really is more of a negotiating tool, essentially. And there was a big concern um, around the end of last year that um, the UK government might be ready to trigger Article 16. And certainly they would argue that the threshold for doing so, um, which is that um, kind of serious societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist or trade diversion, they would argue that that, that has, been, has been met and therefore it's a threat that is, is, still, is still on the table. I think the UK government's position in that sense hasn't changed, even if it feels less likely. But aside from playing into that negotiations, it's not clear what difference it would make on the ground. It's not a long-term solution. You know, the protocol is very clear that Article 16 uh, measures are meant to be time-limited and to address a specific problem that had been identified, not this kind of catch-all tool to try and get rid of the obligations. And actually, one of the things I noted from the poll is that there was an understanding amongst the majority of people in Northern Ireland that Article 16 wouldn't just make the protocol go away or completely resolve the issue. So I think certainly at this time, while we're waiting for the election, um, kind of any talking up of the use of Article 16 is just fundamentally un unhelpful um, and hopefully that they'll use this time and this space, the UK and the EU, to try and um, address some of the practical difficulties and get closer to a solution. 
So people online are posting in lots of questions. So if anyone in the room wants to ask a question, do pitch in. But I'm going to go to an online question from Jim. And please upvote questions. This is our top voted question. Um, Katie, uh, Jim's asked, you know, the DUP always say they speak for the people of Northern Ireland. Jeffrey Tonelson, uh, Jim suggests, opens most of his interviews by saying that. Is that legitimate to say that in the light of these results? If Jeffrey Donaldson were reading your poll, I don't know if he's a big fan of your polling, um, <laughs> would he be able to say, well, actually, maybe I need to do a bit of a double take because maybe I'm not quite speaking for the people of Northern Ireland there? Um, I mean, the thing about Northern Ireland is even the First Minister doesn't speak for everybody in Northern Ireland. You know, this is why we have a First and Deputy First Minister of um, uh, equal standing, at least in theory. Um, I mean, one thing just to pick up on what Raoul was saying, um, there isn't such a thing as a unionist position. Mm. One thing that we can do mm. see from this data is there is a wide range of views, um, or fairly wide mm. range of views amongst unionists themselves. Um, um, and also people from different parts of Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, and you can even see that, of course, in the results of the referendum itself mm. back in 2016. Um, I think there is, so a lot of the British government's comments recently, including the prime ministers, have been ones that have um, echoed concerns or reiterated mm. concerns from the DUP. Mm. Uh, but it is clear that the views of DUP supporters are not those held um, by even necessarily the majority of people in Northern Ireland. So whilst there are concerns, as David has mm. said, uh, the particular concerns of, the, of DUP supporters mm. um, and, uh, are not necessarily exactly those of others. And we can see this mm. when we ask about levels of concern mm. around a constitutional mm. status around the protocol. For the majority of people, and this is found in other polls as well, the protocol is not the top issue. Okay, it's quite interesting because we've got another question from an, another anonymous uh, about, you know, the extent to, have you evaluated the extent to which the opposition's protocol is fundamentally constitutional and one of democratic consent versus economic? And the suggestion is that such core positions are unlikely to change no matter what softening of terms may be agreed. Um, David, do, I mean, do you think, you talked a bit about representation and the needs for that. Obviously, that's quite complicated with, you know, if I was in the EEA, I don't get much representation uh, in EU decisions. It's quite hard to see how you would concede much more to a constituent part of the UK which has decided to formally leave. But, you know, are there things that actually could convince people in Northern Ireland that some of those you know, legitimate democratic concerns are being addressed? I think a number of things that we found in the polling was vast majority of people um, do not actually know that um, Northern Ireland is present as part of the UK delegation when it's at attending meetings of the Joint Committee, the Specialised Committee, or what's called the Joint Consultative Working Group. Um, that's just not known, whereas Northern Ireland is part of those delegations. Also, I think, yeah, you made the point about the European Economic Area. As part of the protocol arrangements, there is quite a privileged um, information exchange forum, this Joint Consultative Working Group, um, which I would actually say does provide opportunity for Northern Ireland if it formulates a voice and gets it represented through the UK government to have an input on issues to do with, with the protocol. Um, so we, we probably need to gre create greater awareness of those mechanisms. What we also need to do is make sure that they actually work. Um, and I think one of the problems we've got at the moment is with the institutions of the protocol. They're not meeting on a regular basis. The Joint Committee met last week. It was meant to meet four times this, this last, last year. It's met once. 
Okay. The specialised committee, I don't think, has met, met since September time. Okay. So I think if you had the situation where you almost sort of normalised the institutions, had them up and running, and you had some reporting on them, and you got familiarity with them, then you might have a sense that the Northern Ireland voice is being fed through. I think also what we've seen is okay, the issue of medicines was raised. Mm. Um, and by all accounts, what the EU has put forward goes a considerable way to addressing the concerns which, which exist. Um, but that's not necessarily been flagged. Um, it's interesting the way in which I think people were split, I think about 45, 45, on whether the EU proposal around medicines was too little too late. Whereas I think if you talk to industry, most of them say, well, actually, it goes a very long way to addressing our concerns. So part of it is there not being reliable information around about what's actually happening with the protocol. That's not to say there aren't serious concerns still there, but do we possibly are focusing more on the concerns rather than some of the genuine efforts that have been made or could be made to address some of those concerns? I'm really interested with what, dif what difference it's made. We saw David Frost, who was the sort of lead UK negotiator, the architect of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was you know, if not uh, a fan of the protocol, was there as chief negotiator when the protocol was negotiated and signed by Boris Johnson. Uh, over here, it looks to us as though there's at the very least an improvement in the mood music with the transfer to Liz Truss. Maybe that's just because of her sort of savvier Instagram presence. Maybe it's sort of substantive. Um, but in Northern Ireland, what's it feel like? I mean, David Frost was dedicated full-time Mr Brexit. Liz Truss, frankly, has got quite a lot of other stuff to do. The Minister of State was Minister of State for about five weeks, four weeks, and then was taken off to be Chief Whip in the reshuffle there. I mean, do you get the sense that the Truss team is engaging in Northern Ireland in the same way as maybe the Frost team was? Because we've seen... You know, Maris Jefkiewicz make a lot of the fact that he is talking to Northern Ireland business. He is representing the real concerns of Northern Ireland people with the implicit criticism that the UK is failing to do that. Does that, does that resonate in Northern Ireland? How does it feel from you over there? I think uh, it's, it's, I think it's still early days uh, on this. I think there's certainly a sense that there was a mood change. Mm. Um, but uh, at the moment, we've not necessarily seen mm. the product of that. Mm. Um, any real move towards actually resolving the, the issue. Um, but I think, yeah, there is a serious concern mm. there to the extent to mm. which Liz Truss has the bandwidth to deal with the Northern Ireland issue. Um, because it, it is highly mm. complex. There are a, a lot of moving parts mm. um, to it, and there's a lot to manage, particularly in an election year. Um, well, I think we can only be optimistic yeah. that that mood change does actually deliver some substantive movement such that you do actually move towards resolving the issues, because obviously people are concerned about the implications mm. of, on the political stability in Northern Ireland mm. if you don't resolve these issues which are currently um, uh, um, cause, causing so much concern. So, Katie, I mean, the team has moved across, didn't they, from yes. uh, David Frost's Europe unit into the, into the Foreign Office to support mm. Liz Truss. I mean, are the officials very visible in Northern Ireland? No. Get the sense? <laughs> no. Um, but I, I would say, um, so... For example, Liz Truss coming to Northern Ireland and then not meeting all the political parties mm. in the executive, that's, that's very bad because of the nature of power sharing. So even if unionists are vocal in their concerns and have genuine concerns, and it is very important mm. for them to meet the Foreign Secretary, mm. it's equally important for her to uh, speak to the other members mm. of the executive as well. Mm. Um, and also the tweeting of promotional... <laughs> 
standpoint from the UK government and their views around the problems of the protocol in relation mm. to a visit, it's a very peculiar thing if you think about it for a government minister to make a visit to part of the UK into something that's then, a, a, um, I won't use the word propaganda, but it, it, was a, it was a very strange video and the Minister um, for Europe did the same thing, mm. just emphasising the problems, which doesn't feel like it's aimed at the people of Northern Ireland to reassure them that they are working mm. on these problems with, in negotiation with the EU. I think there needs to be a step change in order to um, take it out of the sphere of the, the politicking and the rhetoric and the hyperbole around it and to actually um, reassure people that there is an you know, there is hope of there being a negotiated mm. outcome that they will agree on. The mm. joint statements between mm. Liz Truss and Shevkovich have been very important. There's a long way to go mm. yet in order to kind of get that stability that is needed. Um, and, and just to sort of pick up on this, this question of whether we're in limbo before mm. the election, the hope would be yet that there could be something to calm the waters a little bit. Because um, um, it's a long way yet to the election, mm. um, and there's an awful lot of uh, genuine anxieties around what might happen, um, um, and they may well be fed into the election if there's something that could be done beforehand to, to reassure people um, that um, you know that it is possible for the UK and the EU to have mm. an agreement, even on medicines or some things that most worry people that helps them have confidence going to the election that there might so yet be. So you don't think we're in a position that, I mean, we were always told during the negotiations themselves that nothing is agreed till everything is agreed. And obviously the July command paper put forward a quite substantial revisiting of the protocol, if not a sort of switching the defaults. Do you get the sense you could, you know, is there appetite? Do you get any sense for saying, well, let's move a few things out of the pending tray into the done tray? Do you think that's feasible? Well, let's bear in mind, there'll be continual bargaining. There'll be, mm. it's gonna, this is a really, really complicated mm. document, and it will have implications mm. that evolve over time for Northern Ireland, so there'll continually be issues that they need to agree upon and make decisions on. So it, there's never going to be a point at which you mm. say, well, that's done, and we can mm. just brush, wash our hands of it. Um, so to get into the habit of uh, you know, making, mm. um, having agreements, clarifying issues, giving information on the progress made and what is agreed, um, that would go a long way towards, as I say, calming the waters, as I think is necessary before the election. And Raoul, I want to pick up those points, but I want to throw another couple at you about the pressures on, on Liz Truss. Um, I always thought that, you know, Foreign Office, Foreign Secretary was quite a busy job when she was asked to take on this, and the Northern Ireland Protocol is quite detailed. So there's always a bit of a bandwidth question. Since then, we have you know crisis turning into war in Ukraine. The UK making quite a lot of the need to cooperate with European partners. I wonder whether that would affect at all the way the government might be approaching that. Conversely, of course, we have those slightly forgotten, receded, Partygate rumbling on in the background. The Met Police investigation, the possibility that we might go into yet another Conservative leadership battle and Liz Truss potentially is a contender looking for support. And we know that there's quite a substantial uh, faction on the Conservative backbenches who are not fans of the protocol. And we're looking for you know, a tough line from whoever aspires to be next prime minister. So how on earth do those different pressures potentially play out? Or actually, you know, is this just really, let's just laser-like focus on the detail of what the section on medicine says and how I'm going to negotiate SBS checks. 
Well, I think, uh, to pick up that last point and, and tie into some mm. of the, uh, the points Katie made, I, I think Liz Truss in particular sees this as a much more political negotiation. So that is why there has been more politics involved. Mm. Um, you know, yes, there are the technical negotiations going on, but they are mostly at an impasse. Like the two sides mm. go to each other, they present mm. their their positions and they are a long way apart and the EU side well, says well this is what EU law means, DG Sante is there saying well these are all the health regulations on the food you have to meet and the UK side goes and says well these are how we need to completely change how the border works between GB and Northern Ireland and the gap is massive so yes improved tone and all of that but the, mm. you know we shouldn't forget the, the gaps are still very large um, and, mm. and so I think yeah Liz's approach is very much this should be a more political mm. negotiation. Um, I think you know, in terms of, and so all of that, I think, means it, it is going to run, it is going to run longer. And I, you know, I don't see there is, I mean, first of all, the gaps are big technically, but even if you could do something before the election, I personally think, you know, the risk is it would, it would become, it, it would be a bit of a almost waste of, of some potential compromise because the DUP in particular, I don't see ahead of the election would have any incentive to, to even, you know, accept it or live with it in any way. You know, we are we know they're tacking towards mm. the TUV vote mm. to try and see it stop what they mm. see as a bleeding into that, how real that is, etc. Mm. we can question. But that seems to be their position. So they're never gonna gonna support, you know, even something minimal on customs ahead of the election, I think. Um, and so there is a risk you put it on the table, it gets knocked down, and then it's hard to come back to it afterwards. Whereas I think if you come to it after the election when more things might be in play, maybe it's more realistic. I don't know. So I, I just think, I, I think there are lots of reasons why something won't happen ahead of the election. I mean, on the point about Conservative and the leadership, and I mean, first of all, obviously, Liz does have a lot on, and the Foreign Secretary is a, is a very significant role, in, and at the moment, I mean, I, I don't think there is going to be a particularly significant read across from the UK EU cooperation on Ukraine um, to the improved moods or, or anything like that in, in terms of the protocol, unfortunately. Um, you know, if anything, the two sides are at logheads on the protocol now and they're proving they can work perfectly well together on, on the Ukraine sanctions. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see that changing much, um, unfortunately. In terms of the potential leadership contest and, and the ongoing rumblings, obviously that will come to a head at some point, whether it's post the local elections or, or the Met inquiry. From Liz's perspective, as you said, whether there is any incentive on her to compromise given the views of, of, of um, the ERG and, and that side of the party, I think the question would be, you know, where else do they have to go other than supporting Liz? And that's the best mm -hmm. hope that she feels, you know, actually they are going to be backing her if there is a leadership contest, if that happens, regardless. And therefore, maybe she has more space than others to make a compromise. Mm. I think that's the most optimi optimistic mm. reading I can give. I'm not sure that's true, but <laughs> that would be the optimistic reading. <laughs> well, can I just come back to you? I mean, you are Director of Trade and Investment in uh, Deloitte. Uh, we saw some sort of suggestions from the polling that there is, you know, some people in Northern Ireland really have bought into this sort of best of both. If we only we could get over some of these little local difficulties, there is a best of both worlds, which quite a lot of people thought in selling the protocol where Northern Ireland can benefit from its dual access to the GB internal market and the EU single market. Do you get any sign in your day job at Deloitte that actually there is anything in that, that there is a potential for that? That's a question from anonymous. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. I think, 
around the time protocol was agreed and, and in sort of, you know, 2020, there was initially some interest. And I think particularly in the heavily regulated mm. sectors, you know, I think uh, pharma and some other heavily regulated sectors particularly saw the potential mm. benefits. Mm. I think that has unfortunately dropped off just due to the instability and uncertainty. You know, we've got this mm. informal standstill. Mm. No one knows when mm. and if that will end. So you can't really invest and make, you know, big supply chain decisions mm. or mm. location decisions knowing, mm. without knowing that. Uh, and then you don't know what will come afterwards. You know, you don't know if it's going to be the full protocol mm. or if it's going mm. to be something else. So I think that level of uncertainty, and then obviously we have the election and whether there will be, you know, an executive and assembly back up and the added general uncertainty mm. there, the inability to pass a budget, you know, mm. all these things are, are then contributing to quite a, unfortunately, negative uh, sort of investment mm. environment, I guess, in, in mm. Northern Ireland, sadly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there, there, there was interest, and I think there mm. could be interest again, mm. but I think the conditions of wider mm. political stability and, and a bit more mm. certainty are, are obviously kind of fundamental, uh, as with any kind of investment climate. Yeah. Uh, Katie, we've got, um, we've got some questions actually on the polling itself, so I just wanted to put, put her questions on you. One question which probably from Anonymous, yes it is, uh, excellent, is to what extent you can distinguish between attitudes towards Brexit mm -hmm. and attitudes in general and attitudes the protocol in particular, is basically just this, a replay of leave remain. And then a question from Alistair Jones, thanks very much Alistair for uh, declaring uh, yourself, uh, has asked whether we can say anything about the attitudes in different communities. And I want to come back to, is this going to be a protocol election? Is, you know, if it's unresolved, is there any prospect that the executive will get up and running? But I want to come to you after that. But just those questions on the polling, what do we, mm. what, is this just basically Brexit continues to play out and views are pretty entrenched? And just in, to an extent, as we see, I think when John Curtis presents his results for the UK, he shows a bit of a drift from undecided to, well, actually, I should have probably voted to stay. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the big change, rather than people changing their mind. Is, mm -hmm. is that what we're really seeing in Northern Ireland as well? Yeah, so, I mean, it is hard to differentiate between the impact of Brexit and the impact of the protocol. So we've been careful in our phrasing mm -hmm. of the questions. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you look down um, in terms of the, uh, the responses to the polls from different groups, and we haven't published on this um, yet, but just the sort of headline findings would be, yes, you can see a difference. It's not so much mm. unionist nationalists, but remain voters and others um, more broadly. Um, but there is, mm. so if you look at the sort of the, the hardline positions, um, hardline sort of strong unionists, strong mm. nationalists, almost mm. mirror opposites in their views um, on the protocol. Um, but the, there's a big middle ground, of course. Mm. They don't represent mm. the majority of people on e either side. So, um, and that's where the that's where the interesting stuff is. Mm. Um, and you do see the significance of um, some mm. unionist identity there. But um, on certain questions, um, there is a difference, mm. um, particularly amongst those who call themselves sort of softer unionists. Yeah. Uh, so you can see the potential there yeah. for movement. Stevens. And one of the things we've seen in Northern Ireland over the past few years is a rise of support for alliance, um, people who don't identify particularly with Derek Mooney's asked a question about the, uh, asked whether you, whether by focusing on unionist nationalist positions, are we missing the point, the biggest single cohort in NI politics today? He said that, you can comment on that. Today is other, neither unionist nor nationalist. Is, are we yeah. missing those people? So they are the, so the, the 
plurality of people say they're neither unionists nor nationalists, mm. according to Northern Ireland mm. and Times, but obviously that's not reflected in uh, the support for non-aligned mm. parties. Um, we did see Alliance doing mm. particularly well as a non-aligned, leading non-aligned party in 2019. Um, I would suspect that's largely because of the sort of the pro-Remain, pro-second referendum, uh, remember those mm. days, uh, uh, mm. sentiment behind support mm. for Alliance then. Mm. This will be a critical election for them. Mm. Um, to see whether they can translate. Um, I, don't, I don't think it'll, see, the question is, will it be about the protocol and people yeah. voting support for Alliance yeah. this time, or will it be other issues? And as I say, there's many, many other issues that are much more urgent and pressing for, for many people in Northern Ireland. Um, and those are the ones that most people would support Alliance for, for the Green Party or, or other parties, yeah. you know. So um, will this be a possibility of an election getting to those kind mm. of issues? Um, or will it be caught up uh, with concentration on the protocol and, and its connection to the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, which is a big turn-off for many yeah. people? Um, and just to pick up on Ralph's yeah. point about, you know, the, the politics of it all, mm. I mean, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the majority of people are saying that um, if the UK and EU can't agree solutions mm. soon, this is posing a risk to peace and stability yeah. in Northern Ireland. So, no matter whatever is going mm. on in the internal mm. dynamics of the Conservative Party or in the UK-EU relationship, mm. this is of concern, and it's of most concern to, to unionists in particular. Um, I mean, mustn't lose sight of mm. that. So even if it's a small little mm. step, um, that would be something that would make a big difference, at least to the atmosphere, I think. So Royal suggested that there's sort of no prospect of anything, any, any deal before the election and we've got various comments saying is this a protocol election we know we have the consent vote scheduled for 2024 mm -hmm. uh, and you've asked people you know will that determine how they vote how their mla is likely to vote so just just a question you know if we go for another couple of months of stasis have may elections is there any prospect of, an, of a protocol of an executive reforming after that, with the protocol still in the pending tray, or does this mean Northern Ireland's going to have a quite a long period again with a sort of not no functioning executive, but a sort of low functioning executive when we see the in-tray of other decisions, you know, health backlogs and things like that, just mounting and mounting and mounting, and dissatisfaction in Northern Ireland with the failure of the executive to get to grips with some of these, you know, bread and butter politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've kind of got used to a low functioning executive uh, and we mustn't lose sight of the fact mm. that we don't have a functioning executive now mm. because purportedly of mm. protocol um, and we're going to have a long time um, without a, a proper functioning executive with major consequences mm. including a lack of decision on a budget for example mm. um, and I'll let other, others come in on mm. this one but um, there, is, there is a serious concern that we can come, this could be a really bruising election and we can mm. end up with no executive being formed mm. um, and the protocol being right there at the center of the issues, which we, we all know mm. Northern Ireland's politicians have very little influence mm. over in actual fact. So um, despite the lack of trust mm. on both sides, the future of power sharing and therefore of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement feels very much at stake here. And yet there's a sort of powerlessness um, to, um, uh, that's kind of very acute as people are coming into this new election. D David, how do you see that? Do you think? 
Okay, I, I think one thing we, we need to remember is that whereas the protocol is a significant issue for a good number of mm. people, we did ask um, what the, how they ranked it in the polling. Mm. Equally, um, for 44% mm. of people, it's ranked in the bottom three of the 10 issues we, we put forward to them. What is really exercising mm. our minds and what mm. is really concerned is like the future of the, mm. the health service, is mm. the economic situation. I think it's, it's two-thirds see the NHS as being mm. the, the most important mm. issue. Um, constitutional future for Northern Ireland mm. is for 43% of people in, in the top three issues. Now, I think one of the issues we probably want to try and unpack mm. a little bit is to what extent is the constitutional mm. question partly reflection mm. of the protocol. Yeah. Um, um, but I think, yeah, we, we shouldn't overstate the way in which the protocol, or shouldn't assume that the protocol mm. is dominating political debate in, in Northern mm. Ireland. It, it's very prominent, but equally for a good number of people, it's not the top con concern um, mm. for them. Um, I think just g going back to this point that I keep with mm. pe people in Northern Ireland feeling most helpless in this, mm. um, I think there is a sense that, that, mm. that they are, because there are certain things that the UK government could do to potentially move us on towards some sort of resolution. Mm. The whole question of regulatory alignment on SPS. Okay, we had a reasonable debate about, discussion about that a year ago. Mm. When we did some polling on it, we saw majority support in Northern Ireland saying, yeah, we should do that in order to facilitate mm. Or to reduce mm. the friction on the movement between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, um, mm. that's a potential solution there. But I think, for obviously ideological yeah. political reasons, it's not something that the UK government wants to go. But it's very difficult, isn't it, when you have a new minister for Brexit opportunities who is there to speed up regulatory divergence, delivering that Brexit dividend, and doing that, which you know, yeah. you know, and some of the areas consultation on gene editing and things yeah. like that, you see directly in the SBS line. Mm -hmm. But it, I suppose it doesn't necessarily have to be across the board. It's in those areas where the protocol mm. keeps Northern Ireland aligned to EU law. Um, and you can always do it on a temporary basis with, with some of the... I mean, I, I think the... Yeah. I mean, I'm going to ask you all where you think the landing zones are. So... Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I wish that the sort of partial... lots of questions about, you know, how we take in the interests, SBS, uh, medicines, etc., etc. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I wish the partial kind of approach would have worked, but, you know, in my experience in the negotiations, the EU has been steadfast in rejecting any kind of salami slicing and partial, you know, we align mm. with only certain blocks. It would either be, yes, you can do full across the board agricultural SPS alignment, like, you know, mm. Switzerland, um, which I think, as you said, the UK government isn't, isn't going to do for, for political reasons. Um, or, you know, so I, I think there isn't, there isn't much in that space. There are other more creative potential solutions, you know, around whether it's managed divergence mm. or, or a temporary mm. kind of alignment. I think potentially there is something there, but again, that's something that, you know, neither side has been willing to really look at in the past five or six years. So whether anything will change now, I'm not sure. Um, and, and I think there is, to be honest, I think there is a lack of ideas on both sides about where we go now. Um, and that kind of is to me why I feel actually uh, so almost my most pessimistic I've been for, for quite some time about this because there just isn't, it isn't obvious to me what the landing zone is. And unfortunately, you gave me a billing at the start that I have identified <laughs> landing zones, but I don't, I don't quite see it at the moment. Um, you know, there, I have been, you know, I, in, in previous mm. parts of this negotiation, I, I have at least had some sense of where we mm. could go at, at this stage. I, I'm, I'm struggling. So, yeah, it's, it, 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 it is quite difficult, and the, and the two sides are just very entrenched in, in their respective positions, and the gaps are, are significant. Um, yeah, I think, I think there isn't going to be 
you know, let's see post-election whether there will be more creativity. Mm. I mean, I guess the one thing we haven't mentioned about the election is just how much of a landmark shift this election mm. could be with, you know, if the polls are to mm. be, be believed, Sinn Féin becoming the largest party. That is something which is really going to change the nature of the debate mm. and, you know, regardless of the protocol, mm. whether power sharing can and will return mm. and, and all of that is, is going to be a huge question. So, mm. um, yeah, I think regardless mm. of that, the, this, this election will be a pretty... Um, significant one for Northern Ireland. So I'm just very interested, James Crisp from The Telegraph has actually asked exactly that, and he asked me to put it to you, Ralph, <laughs> about what difference Sinn Féin taking the First Minister, we know that First Minister and Deputy First Minister are basically the same job, mm. but have different names and very different optics, and we've never had a Sinn Féin First Minister before. You know, does that make things much, much more difficult for a UK government to be seen to be giving airtime to a Sinn Féin first minister, doing cutting deals, or are they more <sighs> pragmatic than that? I mean, it, it, does, it does make things difficult. I'm not sure. I think it, it is just particularly difficult for the formation of the executive and, and getting mm. that back up and running. I th you know, I think that mm. look, the, the DUP have obviously made some questionable strategic choices over the past few years, you could say, in my view. Um, uh, but, you know, so where they will go after this, I'm not sure. And I think it, it really poses some, some difficult choices for them and, and for the wider, wider, I guess, unionist groupings who, as Casey said, obviously don't always have the aligned same view. Mm. Um, so well, for the UK government, yes, it will make it, it difficult. Uh, I mean, it, it's always, it is always tricky. Look, I think things have reached a stage where there is, at least around the protocol, mm -hmm. a reasonable acceptance in terms of working with, mm -hmm. with the two communities uh, and trying to find that cross-community support. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's impossible, um, but I think a lot will hinge on, yeah, can we get an executive and assembly up and running? Um, I, it, to me, I think that will take some time. Uh, and therefore, I, I, you know, particularly on the protocol, I don't think the UK government is going to take you know action until that happens i i'm not sure you know I th it's reasonable to ask the uk government to implement the protocol over and above in northern ireland when you know i imagine mm. Sinn fein won't like the idea of things being directed from westminster and mm. the, you know the dup and others won't like the idea of the protocol being implemented above the head when they don't agree with it so i think we're going to be at quite a difficult stage yeah. in terms of how the uk government approaches that given its obligations under the under the protocol Jess, any, any landing zones in sight? Yeah, I'd like to be a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, in just that I think we do need to appreciate how, how far we've come. I think there is, we are closer to agreement than we were perhaps six months ago. And I think there is something here in this principle that goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and staying in Northern Ireland should be treated a bit differently, whether that's um, a reduction in the frequency of jets or the removal of them entirely. We have got a lot closer to a kind of agreed mm. position there. I do think one of the barriers is just the practical challenges of trying to create a scheme, even if you agree with the principle, that is robust enough to prevent it being abused and to, and to create mm. problems for the single market, but also permissive enough that it doesn't create a whole lot of paperwork for um, businesses uh, that want to they want to use it and therefore kind of undermines the whole point of it. Um, and I think it's worth saying that, you know, the UK government, with, 
you know, the protocol governs trade that's moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, but the UK government has discretion over goods that are going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, and it itself has committed to design a similar scheme and is struggling to do that as well. So even where it has complete control of, of the kind of requirements on goods, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a really hard thing to do. So I, I think fundamentally it's going to require some level of, of political compromise and, and an increase in trust because when you're operationalising a scheme like this there does need to be trust between the different parties and I, I do think we're getting closer to, to a position where that might be possible I think the big barrier to that is these issues that I mentioned at the beginning that aren't under discussion at the moment so the European Court of Justice, state aid and if the UK government is going to insist that they are absolute red lines then to be honest it's really difficult to, to see there being agreement but uh, you know as, as the Queen's poll shows very clearly for people in Northern Ireland their concern are those those practical issues that have an impact on trade and supply chains not perhaps the more kind of fundamental principle issues like the role of the European Court of Justice so I hope that's not a barrier to resolving some of those practical issues. And Katie and David you your polling shows some shifting of opinion in Northern Ireland towards a sort of softening of views towards but one of some of the questions we've had is is there a prospect of stability, you know, if there's not a single unionist MLA who's pro-protocol, maybe that's a single DUP MLA, but can you see a landing zone for the protocol ultimately where uh, that unionism can live with and see as securing its future in the union as opposed to the reverse? <laughs> Longer term, potentially. Um, I, th I think, th as the polling shows, divisions exist, mm. um, and those do, those the differences in the opposition to the protocol is, mm. is persistent across, mm. across those polls. So it's not going to go away. And obviously, there are mm. uh, political forces mm. in Northern Ireland who are trying to exploit the opposition mm. to, 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 to the protocol, which um, cl clearly exists. Um, I, I think a, a lot depends on the extent to which we can see what I would. I would see it as mm. movement over the last mm. last year towards a more solutions-focused mm. approach. Um, I don't think I think we've moved beyond where we were with the command paper. Which it's got to be mm. renegotiated. It's looking mm. about how you can actually mm. find solutions. I think the point that um, Jess made it, mm. there is really important. If you can focus on the issues which are of interest mm. and concern to people in Northern Ireland and demonstrate that those can be resolved, then I think you might be able to get more buy-in. But I think we're going to be we're a long way from getting that cross-community support for the protocol. So I'd expect the vote in 2020 to re revealing many of the divisions we currently see in, in politics in Northern Ireland around the protocol. Katie, mm. do you want to end on a more optimistic note? <laughs> um, uh, so I, I think in terms of the principles, so we know Northern Ireland is divided in, mm. in ideological terms over principles related to constitutional status of Northern Ireland. So the, as long as the protocol is in that sphere, including in language from the mm. British government, the more difficult it will be to have a... Um, a, a landing space that is accepted um, um, but for the majority of people especially businesses of course uh, this isn't a point of principle or ideology it is about pragmatics and about making do um, and I think the more that the both sides the UK and the EU directly mm. engage with people in Northern Ireland uh, business and civil society mm. the more you get the evidence you need to be making good decisions um, and they will not, I mean, these are really technical, <laughs> boring mm. stuff that, that have, have direct mm. implications for um, uh, movement of goods, etc. So the more you get that direct feed in to mm. the discussions, I think the more hope there is of having um, 
a sort of a, a long-term de-dramatization mm. of the protocol and ultimately making it work. Okay, we're going to leave it there, long-term de-dramatization of the protocol, uh, perhaps. Anyway, so thank <laughs> you very, very much to our panel. Katie Hayward and David Finnamore from Belfast, Raoul and Jess, who've come less far, but thank you so much for all your contributions. So we thank them and thank you all very much for watching and many apologies for all the brilliant questions that Anonymous submitted that I failed <laughs> to get to. So thank you all very much.